Greetings and welcome to the audio-etheric transmission, The Tales of Sage and Savant. Our tale stars Eddie Louise as Dr. Petronilla Sage, Chip Michael as Professor Erasmus Savant, Emily Riley Pyatt as Mix Abigail Entwistle, and myself, Justin Bremer, as your humble narrator. If you want to learn more of the stories of Sage and Savant and the reasons why I record these broadcasts, you can pick up our book, Transmigrations, available on our website and everywhere books are sold. If you like our show and would like to help us do what we do, go to patreon.com slash sageandsavant and become a supporter. This month's program, entitled Turtles All the Way Down, is sponsored by Bailey Denton Photography and features the music of Victor and the Bully. And now, without further ado, we bring you the tales of Sage and Savant. Last we visited our heroes, there was division in the laboratory and dissension among friends. I am sorry to report that the situation has not improved in the intervening weeks. One thing that has improved, thank goodness, is my own ability to maintain the telesensate connection with Dr. Petronella Sage. A package with a number of items personally owned by the doctor was delivered to my workspace a couple of days ago, and making the link whilst holding an item touched by the doctor's own hands seems to provide stability and focus. Much the way that Petra has begun using objects for targeting transmigration subjects, I now perform my duties whilst in possession of priceless artifacts from the distant past. The one slightly worrying thing is that Lucy has no idea of the provenance of these items. We do know that they did not come from the office of the director. I feel now might be a good time to remind you, dear listener, that time moves a little differently for the doctor than it does for me. Or, to be more precise, I am not observing the doctor in real time, but rather in fragments and through the acceleration of advanced computers. In a mere matter of weeks, I have reviewed nearly three years of records. The weeks of the doctor's summer break passed for me in just a few hours. A vague feeling of dread has begun to shadow my days, but I am determined to see this project to its end and to understand, for once and for all, the complete history of Dr. Sage. 
Speaking of the doctor, you will recall that she had set up yet another secret laboratory, this one in Paris, in the below-stairs kitchen of an empty townhome. We now know, at least partially, her reasons for establishing this place. Supplemental Log, Laboratory of Dr. Petronella Sage, Rue Bonaparte, Paris, 12 June, 1896. Thanks to the impeccable work of Jean-Martin Charcot, an eminent physician, anatomical pathologist, and pioneer in the emerging field of neurology, I have secured the records from La Petite Salpetriere for nearly 100 years of epileptics and hysterics. The underkitchen in which I've established this secondary laboratory has been deserted for nearly as long. Using the list of subjects gleaned from Dr. Charcot's research, I shall transmigrate to the correct times, collect the bodies, and bring them to this location for autopsy and examination. Having been unable to glean the precise mechanism of co-apperception from the experiences with living epileptics, I now hope to do so by examining the brains of dead ones. I have shipped the slides with Cunningham's neural tissue here to Paris for comparison. There will be some challenges, for example, how to secure glass slides for the laboratory, but I believe the easiest way to handle that will be to travel to 1672, the date of the oldest record, and stock the laboratory to the best of my ability. The apparatus here can sustain my body for as long as three weeks, which should be sufficient time. Once all supplies are in place, I can transmigrate and begin gathering specimens. It is not ideal, and in fact, it would be much preferable to accomplish all of this work in a modern laboratory, but beggars cannot be choosers, so needs must. Without the technological advances of my home laboratory, I anticipate that this body will be affected by Lichtenberg figures, but the only person likely to see it naked will be the maid, and I shan't be here to answer any questions, so no concerns there. past few hours I have observed as Sage transmigrates, makes her way through the changing streets of the city to L'Hôpital, secures a body, and then trundles it back to the lab for dissection. Slowly, over the course of a century, the slides build up on the sideboard, left to dry like so many cuts of jerky, until at last the doctor secures the final patient, one Bernadette Martin, a 19-year-old epileptic who died just one year in the past. Over six weeks, she autopsied 22 epileptics, mostly women. But before I let Petronella tell you what she has found, I want to bring you up to date on how the professor and Abigail spent their summer. It's breakfast time, my beauties. Come and get it. Yes, Rolf. I know I spoke of getting you a new home, but I'm hesitant to move the loudest of you. Petra won't notice the frogs, lizards and fish that are missing, but I think she would notice the birds. Soon, though. Good morning, Abigail. I'm glad you're here. How goes the cipher breaking? Pretty good. I think I've almost got the entire lot in order. And your investigations? I think the doctor may have contracted Meniere's disease. 
At least that is the only explanation I can come up with for the ear tubes. Meniere's disease? It is a disorder of the inner ear, usually accompanied by vertigo, tinnitus, and eventually hearing loss. Although, this is all wild speculation on my part due to the tubes and her mention of Prosper Meniere in one of her journals. I'm not sure I follow. Dr. Meniere wrote on a particular kind of hearing loss resulting from lesions of the inner ear about 50 years ago. He identified the problem as one of unequal pressure of the eardrums. There is a small channel of air being pumped through the tubes connected to Petra's CRAP helmet and directly into her ear canal. I think she's attempting to rebalance the pressure of her ears, possibly to offset the effects of the disease. Do you really think she has such a disease? I have no idea. I cannot examine her without fully disconnecting her and sitting her up so I can use the otoscope to look for the lesions on her eardrums that typically indicate Meniere's. Even then, it is not the type of thing we would diagnose without careful questioning of the patient. Still, Petra is not known for frivolous self-diagnosis, so I am inclined to think she is treating a true symptom she has experienced. Does this change our plans? I don't see why it should. The priority remains to find the doctor and discover what she is up to. Well then, shall we suit up? No time like the present. The professor and Abigail take their places on the central dais, and the professor buckles in as Abigail sets their trajectory. The doctor has gone to southern France circa 1889. Her recall is set for 30 hours from now, so I have set our own for 28. That should give us enough time to get back, clear away evidence that we have been here, and exit the laboratory before she returns. Oh, I really don't like all this subterfuge. Yes, but we agreed it is better for now that the doctor has no idea that we're following her. We cannot risk her taking further methods to lock us out. I know. Uh, you're right, of course. I just can't help being impatient for the day we've forgiven each other and are once again friends and companions. And so, the two people who most care for the Doctor fling their consciousnesses into time and space in search of their friend. Will they find her? We'll find out after this short musical break. And now, dear friends, we invite you to listen to the marvelous musical expressions of Victor and the Bully.
Now, back to our story. Our heroes have jumped into the near past and awoken in the bodies of peasant laborers discarded at the edge of a field after a particularly grueling harvest. They stumble to their feet, frightening the other laborers on their way back to the village for the evening. Mon Dieu! Quelle their comrades hustle them into the back of the wagon, clucking and fussing over the apparent resurrection of two they had thought lost to privation and thirst. Uh, I am thirsty. Me too. I, I believe these bodies may have died of heat exhaustion. Are you all right otherwise? Well, I've got a beastly headache and an uncomfortable lump. <laughs> Oh. Oh, Petra is right. Being a man is bloody inconvenient. You get used to it. <laughs> Thank you. I'd rather not. Do you know where we are? It looks just like the paintings. So I'm assuming Vaucevois. Paintings? Auvergevois? Ah, perhaps you do not keep current with the art world. There's a Dutch painter by the name of Van Gogh who painted many canvases of wheat fields, like this very one. 
He died poor and relatively unknown in 1890. I could imagine so if he chose to paint the landscapes as uninspiring as this one. Oh, but that's part of the man's genius. He painted light and color and movement in a dramatic new way. He may have been undervalued at his death, but his works are beginning to earn praise now. The wagon took them into the village and past the Auberge Ravou, the residence of the legendary painter. Oh. Oh, I just thought of something. Oh, I believe Van Gogh was epileptic. Could that be why Petra's here? She's chosen to enact co-perception with the painter? Oh, that would be cruel. Van Gogh was known to have struggles with his mental health. He eventually commits suicide. Oh, at some point this very year, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, no. Petra cannot have anything to do with that. I mean, she cannot just keep invading the lives of medically fragile artists and disrupting them to the point of death. It isn't right. That is why we're here, my dear. We must find her and plead with her to see reason. In the event, it would be the next evening before they had the chance to encounter the doctor, who had indeed occupied one of the world's most famous painters. Their fellow field workers plied them with small beer, bread and cheese, and then pulled them away to sleep which their overly exhausted bodies were in dire need of. Then, at the faintest light of dawn, they were roused, placed in the wagon once again, and taken to the wheat fields where they spent the day in back-breaking labor reaping the rich summer grain. By the time they returned to the village of ouvert sous in the late evening, they were aching tired and more than a little cranky. We have less than four hours to find Petra. This plan is not working at all as I thought it would. Well, what did she expect? The only thing you can expect around Petronella Siege is the unexpected. Well, I do wish that... Before the professor can state exactly what it is he wishes, a commotion in the square calls their attention. I am in a cage. I'm in a cage, and I've got everything I need. I've got everything I could possibly want. Calmez-vous, monsieur. Calmez-vous. I shan't calm down. Ah, dear God, freedom. To be a bird like other birds. <laughs> a human idler of this variety is just like a bird that idles in the same Salty sea. <laughs> I, I, I will get out. Just you watch. One of these days, I really will get out. Is that our artist? The paint-stained smock and pocket full of paintbrushes would indicate as much. I cannot see Petra in him. Neither can I. Maybe I misguessed. Perhaps it's just happenstance that brought her here to the same French village of a famous epileptic painter. Perhaps she thought it was worthwhile to inhabit the life of a field laborer or a bartender. (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine very few things our friend would find less worth her attention than field workers and bartenders. She does rather have an agenda of knowledge that leads me to believe that the epileptics are her true target. Perhaps she's learned how to allow the host personage control of the body. Hmm. Well, I suppose if it is possible for Petra to steer the limbs whilst Claude Duval was in the background of his mind, it is conceivable that the painter could maintain control of his body whilst our doctor is just a presence in his mind. And thus she becomes just another facet of his mental instability. Oh, that does not sound like an improvement. But then the time comes when migratory birds fly away. A fit of melancholy. 
he's got everything he needs, say the children who look after him. But the sky is brooding and stormy, and deep within he is rebelling against his misfortune. As if called by these words, the skies darken with roiling clouds and the distant hint of Petricor fills the air. Rain is coming. The painter stops and sniffs the air, his fingers clutching convulsively around the packet of brushes in his pocket. He scurries for the door of his residence, and before Abigail or the professor can react, slips inside and closes the door firmly behind himself. Petra! Well, that was a bust. What do we do now? I'm not certain. We cannot know for sure that Petra's here, and I would hate to add to the distress that poor man is feeling. Perhaps it's better for us to just go home and regroup. Try another day. And they did just that. When they arrived home, they carefully reset the laboratory to appear untouched, hung their Faraday armor carefully on the hooks, and snuck down the stairs to the safety of the greater university before Petra could return and catch them. In the succeeding days, they settled into a pattern, transmigrating to the future, the past, and once even to the present day. At the beginning of each journey, they were careful to program their recall for a minimum of two hours before the doctor's return. The first journey was to a rural farm in 1969, and they did not find the doctor, who was fumbling her way through a concert appearance in the form of Neil Young, a Canadian singer-songwriter who took the doctor's invasion as a sign he needed to check out mentally, and left her in front of a crowd of 400,000 people ready to tune in and drop out. It wasn't the fame of the singer nor the size of the crowd that kept our pair from connecting, but rather Abigail's excitement at the wonders of the future. Oh, my goodness. Do you see these clothes, Professor? So colorful, so loose. <laughs> oh, oh, my goodness. Not a single one of these girls is wearing a corset. <laughs> Can you imagine? I prefer not to think on it too closely, to be honest, Abigail. But how can you not? Is it fancy dress clothes? That has got to be it. This can't be the way people dress every day. And look at the hair. Both men and women wearing it long and loose. Doesn't it get caught in things and tangled and... Ugh, what is that smell? Oh, I suspect it might be cannabis. Oh, did you know that Sir William Brooke O'Shaughnessy, he was Irish, used cannabis to help calm the symptoms of cholera? I did not. Many cultures throughout the world use it, but now we find it mostly in concoctions prepared by medicine peddlers. But does this mean that the future, there is widespread and unrestricted use of this plant? Well... I don't know if we can go quite that far, judging by the uninhibited behavior of this crowd. Are those three people kissing? Yes, I believe they are. Realizing that the search for the doctor would be impossible in a crowd this large, they gave in to the inevitable and attempted to relax and enjoy the festival. Aw, puppy! Next, they followed the doctor to Colorado in 1905 to follow the train of President Teddy Roosevelt on a bear hunting trip to that trackless wilderness he described so poetically. The green of the valley was a delight to the eye. 
bird song sounded on every side, from the fields and from the trees and the bushes beside the brooks. And the air was sweet with the springtime breath of many budding things. They thought their luck had turned when they recognized the doctor in the striding form of the president. Unfortunately, they found getting close to the man to be a problem. Step off there, partner. No reason to crowd the trail. But I need to talk to that man, the one with the bushy mustache. You want to talk to the president of the United States? Oh, yes. She is a... I mean, I believe we are old acquaintances. Well, I'm sorry, but the president is hunting bear and not likely to be in the mood to entertain a barefoot mountain girl. You can write your complaint and leave it at the Western White House like all the other folks. The Western White House? Well, the Hotel Colorado. Now, stand off the trail, Missy. After that, they traveled approximately 50 years into the past where the doctor was enacting co-apperception with the English writer and social critic Charles John Huffman Dickens. Of course, that writer was currently in the throes of penning a tale of two cities and hardly left his rooms. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on its being received for good or for evil in the superlative degree of comparison only. Really, Charles, I know I'm just a guest in your head, but I think you could trim that down a bit. Yes, of course, I know you are the writer, but as a scientist, it seems you're simply repeating a pattern with no new information added. Ow! All right, Charles, you don't have to give me a headache. I won't change your words. Mid-19th century London was a bust, so they followed the doctor to the future again for three successive trips. My goodness! What is that sound? Ah, yes. Those are automobiles. Horseless carriages. But they are so loud. Well, it seems the vehicles simply keep getting faster. <gasps> what was that? Oh, I believe that's an aeroplane. Is everyone in the future in a hurry? A noisy, noisy hurry. Well, it can appear that way. So, what is Paisley Park? I'm not sure. A, a theater? I just saw a young Moorish man dressed in outlandish clothes in her. Perhaps he was an actor in there performing a tello? They did not know they were standing outside the home and recording studio of Prince Rogers Nelson. Nor did they know that Prince was epileptic and that the doctor was currently trying to negotiate life as the handsome and talented singer. What they did know was that security stopped them from investigating further. <sighs> This is not working. 
We've only caught a couple of glimpses of the doctor and all this bouncing about. My head hurts from all the noise of the future, and when I'm in my body at home, it feels sluggish and unhappy. I believe it is time that we admit that chasing the doctor willy-nilly through time and space is in an ineffective way to reach her. I'm not ready to give up, and yet... Even I must admit this is not working. I must come up with a better plan. What shall we do in the meantime? Well, we're nearly 100 years into the future. I say we go find out as much as we can about life here. What is work like? What do people accustomed to moving this fast do for leisure? Do they ever slow down? Will our heroes come up with a better plan to catch up with the doctor? We'll find out after we break for a word from our sponsor. Do you want to feel sexy? Have you ever wished to be photographed like we French girls? Now, with the help of Bailey Denton Photography, you can be immortalized as your own unique piece of art. Bailey Denton specializes in wet plate photography, producing one-of-a-kind artwork with no negative or digital file that could slip onto the internet without permission. Your personal wet plate picture is an artwork that looks timeless and will last for centuries. The Bailey Denton Studio is a relaxed, comfortable, and private setting where you can set aside your inhibitions, let down your hair, and release your inner beauty. All sessions include a full consultation, hair and makeup, and a full photo session, built by end result, not by hour. Pelly Denton take their time to be sure you achieve complete satisfaction. They offer custom packages and guaranteed results. There has never been a better time to see the masterpiece within. Pick up the telephone and call 714-715-6092 or look them up online at www.bellydentonphoto.com Treat yourself as the work of art you are. That is what we French girls do. Yes, dear friends, you heard it here. Bailey Denton Photography for one-of-a-kind photography and daguerreotypes. And now, back to our show. Our heroes returned to King's College and adjourned from the laboratory. Erasmus had just smoothed the tapestry back into place, disguising the secret entrance, when he was hailed by the new head of medical science, Dr. McNeish. What? Oh, there, Professor. Uh, Dr. McNeish, uh, congratulations on your appointment. Oh, thank you, sir. Thank you. I was wondering, have you seen Dr. Sage recently? I'm afraid I haven't been able to catch up with her as of late. Is anything the matter? Oh, no, nothing at all. Just want to get my finger on the pulse of all the research and activities that are going on before the new semester begins. If you see her, will you ask her to make an appointment with me? Oh, absolutely. A jolly good, then. Ta, Professor. Accent whistle. I hope this doesn't mean he's simply going to be another Cunningham and stand in opposition to all of Petra's ambitions. You and me both, Professor. And now that I have caught you up to the happenings at King's over the summer, we can rejoin the doctor in her second laboratory in Paris and see what exactly she is up to. 
Supplemental Log, Laboratory of Dr. Petronella Sage, Rue Bonaparte, Paris, 26 July, 1896. After concluding brain vivisection on 22 cadavers secured from La Petite Salpetriere, I've recognized a lesion on the right frontal lobe that is consistent in all patients. That same lesion appears on the brain of James Cunningham. So now I shall pack up all research notes from this laboratory and adjourn to King's. There is one last body I need to autopsy. Surprisingly, Sage does not go back to Les Chargés de la Faire, but calls a cab and has the cabbie help her load three trunks of notes and slides into the carriage, which then takes her to the docks at Calais. She takes a ship back to King's College in the form of Charles. I don't know why she has chosen not to return via transmigration. A trip that might have taken her minutes has instead taken her days, but at last she lands back in her own laboratory. Once she has her files settled, she places Charles' body upon the plinth and triggers the recall chimes to return her consciousness to her own body. When Petra came to consciousness, she blinked three times, taking a moment to get her bearings. She sat up slowly, unbuckling the restraints and removing her CRAP helmet. She slid off the dais and staggered to gain her balance. Breathing deeply a few times, she reached over and pulled the console within reach, turned the Edison recorder on, and brought the speaking tube to her lips. Laboratory, Dr. Petronella Sage, King's College, 30th July, 1896. This log follows immediately after supplemental log of 26 July. I have returned to my home laboratory and updated all files and research notes. Upon recall to my native form, I must make note that the Meniere's symptoms have gotten worse. I'm nauseated and extremely dizzy. When I dress, I will check for lesions, but I fully expect that just as the last few times I've checked myself, I will find none. I do not believe I have Meniere's, but rather idiomatic symptoms of transmigration. There is no real way to test with a sample size of three, but it might be wise to limit the number of times a single consciousness is allowed to travel until we can develop methods to overcome the Meniere effect. It is worth noting that, to my knowledge, neither Erasmus nor Abigail developed these symptoms before their transmigrating was terminated. Sage stands carefully, using the plinth for balance, and then makes her way to the changing room. When she returns to the dais, she is wearing a surgical gown over regulation plus fours. She makes her way to the plinth where the body known as Charles reclines. Once again, she pulls the console close and turns on the Edison. Continuation, 30 July 1896. I've identified the spontaneous lesions created in the brain by epilepsy. Now I shall look for the non-genetic marker that Sly Calypso inferred. The goal is to discover how SBMIs are coded and to investigate whether it might be possible to artificially create the conditions necessary for safe and non-violating co-apperception. If I can duplicate this marker, it will be a groundbreaking discovery for medical science and a much better use for transmigration than simple historical or future time voyeurism. And with that, Sage pulls a scalpel from a roll of instruments she keeps under the plinth and slices into the scalp of the SBMI. Blood flows upwards from the wound in the handsome body's forehead and Petra dabs it back with a muslin pad. 
When she has pulled the skin away from the skull, she reaches to the shelf below and pulls out a bone saw. The grating sound of metal on bone echoes through the laboratory, and Petra raises a shoulder to dab the sweat off her forehead. When she has cracked the skull, she pulls away the section of bone to reveal the glistening brain. Come here, my beauty, and show me your secrets. Petronella Sage, whatever are you doing? The professor has caught the doctor in the act of vivisection. How will she answer his query? How will she react to him having access to her laboratory even though she expressly locked him out? We'll find out the answers to these and many more questions in the next episode of The Tales of Sage and Savant. The Tales of Sage and Savant is a Twin Star production, brought to you on the first of each month from our Southern California studios. Starring Eddie Louise as Sage, Chip Michael as Savant, Emily Riley Pyatt as Abigail, and Justin Bremer as the narrator. Soundtrack music, sound design, and audio engineering by Chip Michael. The theme song for season four was interpreted and recorded by Victor and the Bully. Special music in this episode was provided by Victor and the Bully. Check them out at victorandthebully.com. We would like to extend our gratitude to this month's sponsor, Bailey Denton Photography. Episode 401, Turtles All the Way Down, was written by Eddie Louise. Check out our website, sageandsavant.com, to find the facts behind the fiction. If you like our show and would like to help us do what we do, go to patreon.com slash sageandsavant and become a supporter. And finally, as always, we urge you to remember that death is no barrier to science.